Welcome to Carstral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carstral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita-affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today is recording from the homelands of the Akchekemen and Tongva people. My guest today, who I'm incredibly excited to talk to, uh, is Karamet Ryder, who is an associate professor of criminology, law, and society at UC Irvine. She studies prisons, prisoners' rights, and the impact of prison and punishment policy on individuals, communities, and legal systems. Her first book, 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement, uncovers the history of California's original Supermax prison. Thank you so much for being in conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. Good. So we'll just jump right in with the history of Pelican Bay and the Supermax. So why did states like California um, and the U.S. turn towards solitary confinement in this moment of the 1970s and the 1980s? I'll say one thing to back up is that I'm I'm all I'm always um as as the as the movement against solitary progresses, I always like to pause and say, we have always used solitary confinement from the earliest prisons we had, right? So I think that's an important to understand because I think there's this idea sometimes that um, it it has waxed and waned in popularity and it's gone away completely and then it's come back. And I think it has always existed to some extent. And that's really important to understand because I think it's integral to the prisons we have. So, But that said, it did become much more common and popular as a practice in the 1970s and 80s. And so there is this, right, which is kind of the starting point of, of my research into supermaxes in particular. Um, and I think as with many things in prison, it's not a perfectly simple story. Um, and the backdrop that's really important to understand, of course, is the rise of mass incarceration. So states like California were in the process of building dozens of new prisons. And among those new prisons, they tended to build a supermax or two. Um, because, and again, this speaks to the idea of solitary confinement always being part of our prisons, because you know they, they had a sense that maybe 5 to 10% of the population would need these highly restrictive conditions of confinement. And so as you built a whole bunch of new prisons, of course, you would build some solitary confinement beds. Um, but I think the story, the more interesting part of the story is what why people were so sure that they needed that many and what they were responding to when they built up the prisons. And I think there, there's a really powerful historical narrative about the supermax, like the, you know, the single use long term solitary confinement facility as a response to uh, organizing and unrest in the prisons, um, and and I think that's a you know that's a that's a key part of the story that I think is really interesting and is more nuanced than the just mass incarceration, right? Which I think people had previously assumed. Oh, we're building more prisons, so so some of them are long term, but it but I think a, a real part of the story in terms of like individual designers, right, in places like California that built one of the archetypal supermaxes, Pelican Bay in the 1980s, one of the things people who designed and advocated for that facility said was, you know, we had all this unrest in prisons in the 1970s. We had in particular um, African-American prisoners organizing, people like George Jackson, um, organizing what prison officials called prison gangs, what people on the outside called um, kind of prisoners' rights and social justice, civil rights organizing. 
something. Um, but we had people organizing to assert their rights um, and often to resist um, abuse in the prisons in pretty um, concerted and delegitimizing to the prison system ways. And so, um, you know, I think two of the most famous events are uh, in California, George Jackson, who was well known. He was the best selling uh, author of a book of letters. Um, he was on. Um, he was being held in solitary confinement off of death row at San Quentin. And uh, the story goes that he attempted to escape and he was shot and multiple people were stabbed to death on that isolation unit at San Quentin. And it's still not clear exactly what happened, but it was the deadliest day in California prison history. Um, and it was followed a few weeks later by the revolt at Attica in New York state. And so these, and these were not isolated events, right? Those are two famous ones that people think about, but there was unrest throughout the prisons in the 1970s that was kind of at this intersection of organized resistance and often had some moments of violence, sometimes caused by the state as in Attica, where it was the um, National Guard that went in and, it, you know, we now know decades later was responsible for many of the deaths, um, but if, if not all. <laughs> uh, but um, I think that that understanding of moments like this as really driving the very intense perception among people in prison systems who were making decisions about prison building and about the shape of the new prisons they were building, um, feeling very strongly that they needed someone to control this kind of unrest and resistance in the prisons and supermaxes being the thing that institutionalized that. And the, and the link is that, you know, um, after George Jackson's alleged escape attempt after Attica, prisoners were locked down, locked into cells, often in old decrepit buildings. Um, and those same prisoners were often some of the first people moved to these new supermax facilities. So there's this real continuity of this sense of these institutions keeping people for decades at a time who the prison system saw as threatening to their legitimacy and authority. And, and those being the people who kind of continue to justify the need for these institutions. That's that's really interesting, and especially because there's this distinction where we start to see there's this rhetoric that we need new prisons, society needs new prisons in this era to protect the public society, the public from crime, from danger, um, from harm, um, and those sort of get conflated within that debate. But supermaxes don't seem to be built to protect the public. They seem to be protecting internally um, within the prison system. Exactly. That's, a, I think, a really important observation about them. And it speaks to everything about how they run, right? I think people often think supermaxes are, oh, where you send someone like um, a famous terrorist, like Zokar Sarniev, like when you hear about them in the news. But in practice, supermaxes are places where people are sent based on internal administrative decisions. It's, it's incredibly rare. Um, absent states that have supermaxes for death penalty, it's incredibly rare for your sentence to prison to define where you go. And in practice, people are going to supermaxes because they either break an in-prison rule or more commonly, um, they're labeled dangerous within the prison system for some reason. And so they're the people who are threat internally in the prison who get sent to supermaxes. So how does, how does that happen within the system? How does someone get sent there? And is there any due process, um, any, any sort of recourse uh, a person can take against that label? Yeah, that I mean, that is exactly um, the the crux of one of the challenges are the are the the 
minimal due process protections in place. So um, generally, someone gets sent to a supermax like Pelican Bay in one of two ways. Um, one, they break an in-prison rule. So that's a pretty clear-cut process, right? Like every prison system has rules. People, when they come into prison, they get that rule book. Um, in California, it's a, you know it's often named by the title, like Title 15. Um, and they are, you know, if they break a rule, like say um, they have a contraband cell phone or they have a weapon that they made or they participate in a fight or a riot, um, they would get a rule violation. And that would be associated with a fixed time in solitary confinement, often a couple weeks to a couple months. Um, even that process, which is pretty at least transparent, like you're told you've broken a rule and you know what it is, um, the process of being sent there would be internal and administrative. Um, so even if you got some new criminal charge, that would be separate from the decision to send you to solitary. And so at that administrative hearing, in the best case scenario, you're told the rule you break and how long you're going to solitary. It's not anything like a trial. You don't have a right to a lawyer or necessarily even to witnesses. Generally, you just have a right to know um, why you're being sent there and, and some right to respond sometimes only just like in writing or by signing off on a piece of paper. Um, so that's that itself has very little process. But the more common way people end up in solitary confinement for much longer periods of time is by getting labeled dangerous in various systems. And there's even less kind of oversight and procedure in that process. So in California, until a few years ago, all that was required was three pieces of evidence in your prison file to establish that you were a gang member. And those three pieces of evidence were generally things that we would think of as basic First Amendment rights. So it could be a tattoo, a book you were reading, a note about someone you were talking to on the prison yard, or someone who sent or received a letter from you. Um, and any three pieces of evidence like that would be um, considered evidence that you were a gang member. And once you were labeled a gang member, you could be sent to solitary confinement at Pelican Bay indefinitely. Um, so that is how prisoners ended up there for 5, 10, 15 years. And again, in, in this case, it's an internal administrative process. Often people who experience this, the evidence against them would be considered confidential. So they wouldn't even know what was in the file, let alone have an opportunity to challenge it in any kind of public hearing with any kind of legal assistance. Um, and then it was an even simpler process to continue their confinement. Um, one more piece of evidence after a few months or a few years could get you um, get your stay in solitary extended even further, again, without you necessarily even knowing what it was. And so that that process has been at the crux of some of the challenges to long term solitary confinement, at least in California, that it's that there's you're kind of hopeless to get out of that cycle. Once you get in, it feels a little Kafkaesque. Yeah, very much. And I definitely want to get to some of those challenges and we'll get to the way way the system has been challenged. But first, I want to I, I mean, how did these administrators, these officials, I mean, this seems like a very internal process without transparency, without oversight, without anything. How was that power amassed by these administrators? How was it amassed? How was it amassed? How did yes. they, how do they get this power and how do they keep it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the simplest answer is opacity. Um, one of the things I often say about our prison system is that just one of the most important things we can do is pay attention and develop mechanisms of oversight and transparency. Um, and I think that that goes a long way. The inverse of that goes a long way to explain how this power was amassed. So, you know, in my book, I tell the story of um, 
how little attention there was to actually what kinds of prisons were even being built. Um, and that was partly a question of just like wanting to build prisons really fast um, and delegating a lot of authority to prison officials in the decisions about where to put them, where to cite them, how to design them. Um, and they had they had control in that process um, that that there was surprisingly little legislative oversight. I tell a lot of stories that I, I, I hope will. Um, and, and again, it was, it was partly just about um, uh, speed and the scale of what was being done around mass incarceration. I think that's an important way to understand the opacity is just that it gets hard to understand what's happening when we're talking about so many people in prison for so long. Um, and then the other really important piece of this is just, you know, at every step of the system, there's a lot of deference to the expertise of prison officials. And so you see it in this question of, what kind of prisons do you design? And the legislators in California saying, well, you know, prison officials have to work in them and, and manage the people in them. So we'll let them design them um, with a lot of discretion and control because they're the experts. But we see that at every step, right? It's, it starts with the, the design and building a place like Pelican Bay and people not really even knowing what had been built until prisoners started sending letters from inside to judges and lawyers saying, wait a minute, is this constitutional? Um, and that's kind of amazing. You think about building this multi-million dollar facility and really no one knew what had been built until people were in it describing it um, outside of the prison officials who who were making the design decisions. Um, but then that, that that discretion and that deference to their expertise just continues through every step of the process, right? You see it in the administrative process of assignment to, to solitary that I'm describing also. Um, and it's really endemic in our law that we defer to the expertise of prison officials. And when they say someone is dangerous, um, the courts often say, okay, do whatever you want. And that's a that turns out to be pretty disturbing on the scale it's been happening in the United States. Very much so, not to mention the sort of vested interest these folks might have in growing their system or growing the purview of their authority. And I, I want to I follow up with one question you sort of posed, um, or the people writing these judges posed, is this constitutional? Um, so what actually is solitary confinement? What's happening in Pelican, Pelican Bay and other supermaxes? And is it constitutional? Why is it constitutional? Yeah, so, so I mean, it's it's really helpful, right? I mean, we kind of jumped into talking about the, the history, but solitary confinement is um, keeping someone in a cell. The book is called 23-7 because the idea is you're usually in your cell for at least 23 hours a day, seven days a week, um, with extremely minimal human contact or freedom of movement. So we're talking about a cell, imagine the size of a wheelchair accessible bathroom stall, often has no windows, um, often has a fluorescent light that remains on 24 hours a day so that prisoners can be seen at count times, um, and usually is fairly self-contained. So there's like at least a toilet sink kind of steel combination so that you don't have to leave the cell to go to the bathroom, especially in these more modern facilities. Um, and that hour a day in practice is usually like an hour or two a couple times a week where the person in the cell is let out, often through an automated computerized system where no one actually comes to their door, but someone in a control booth presses a button, um, opens one cell door at a time, and they might be able to go out to a shower or an exercise yard. Um, often that exercise yard is pretty barren too. In California, one of the things prisoners protested for was to have a ball on the exercise yard so they had something to do or a pull-up bar. So you kind of get a sense of how incredibly harsh and restrictive the conditions are when you hear that's what they were on hunger strike to to demand um and 
there's generally basically no human contact. You know, if you need to see a doctor um, or go to the law library, you would be escorted with your hands and your wrists cuffed, often your hands cuffed to your waist by a couple officers. Um, and that's the most human contact you have is that kind of, um, you know, really intense and constrained contact. People talk about going years at a time without seeing um, another human face aside from an officer, without seeing living things. It's really exciting if a bird flies overhead or a roach crawls through the, um, if a bird flies overhead when you're outside in that exercise yard or if a roach crawls past your cell. Those are, those are things people write to you about because it's seeing a living thing in a context in which you might go years without that. Um, and, you know, generally, um, these places are in incredibly out of the way locations. And so if a family member can come visit, which is often really rare based on where they're located, um, the visit would happen behind bulletproof glass. Often people don't even want to have visits in that context where they would be shackled and behind bulletproof glass. So um, it really it really is incredibly restrictive. And, and that's what that's what people were writing about when they first went to Pelican Bay. I'm alone in an eight by 10 concrete box with no hope of getting out for months or years and I have no access to natural light. And is this really constitutional? And the answer is basically yes. Um, there have been efforts to chip away at protected categories of people that have been fairly successful. So even in California and some of the first litigation, seriously mentally ill prisoners are supposed to be protected from being placed in these conditions. If you lose your mind while you're in these conditions, there are fewer protections for you, and that tends to happen with disturbing frequency. Um, you know, there's there's growing movements to make sure kids don't experience these conditions. They do in a lot of places. To make sure pregnant women and transgender prisoners aren't sent there. You know, one way I often think of solitary confinement is that it's the place where people go who don't fit elsewhere in the system. Um, and so it, it, there are increasing movements to kind of figure out how to create protected categories with varying degrees of success. Um, but it it is. Um, you know, the justification for these conditions are as long as you know why you're being sent there and the prison system says you're dangerous, there's generally pretty limited oversight. There's been a little bit of, you know, some courts saying maybe 30 years is too long, but that's the scale we're talking about. Even though the United Nations says 15 days or more can constitute cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, if not torture. So there's a huge gap between where the U.S. is after litigation in California um, they capped in a settlement, they capped terms in solitary confinement at five years, um, which is a huge improvement over 10, 15, 20. Um, the litigation was about 500 people who'd been in these conditions for more than 10 years in California. So we cut it in half. But there's a huge gap between 15 days and five years, <laughs> um, especially when you know that the psychological studies suggest people can experience pretty significant psychological deterioration after even a few hours or days in these conditions. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, so how, I mean, other, you mentioned court battles and you mentioned writing to judges. How else have incarcerated people and their allies uh, contested these conditions? And I, this is where there is there is a more hopeful story, right? When I talked about this, even when the book came out, I think um, these conditions, people were just starting to understand and resist them. And now I think there is a much better sense. You know, I remember when I was writing my dissertation, people hadn't heard of Pelican Bay. They wanted me to describe um, 
explain solitary confinement. I think now there's a there's a much more common, there's a national stop solitary campaign. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture has condemned these conditions. So I think there is a, a more kind of common knowledge about it. And that is because of just incredibly powerful advocacy efforts. So, you know, I you, you detected perhaps some cynicism about the courts and the limits of constitutional challenges. Which is not to say those haven't there hasn't been really powerful litigation, right, that raises the profile when people read about someone who spent 30 years in solitary. I think just the the um, news around that can make a difference. I think um, one of the most powerful advocacy efforts was the one at Pelican Bay, which was a fusion of um, uh, organizing among people inside in collaboration with advocates outside, leading to litigation. And even though I remain cynical about the long-term effects of the litigation, I think all of those efforts together and legislation um, have brought, have shed light on the situation and led to day-to-day improvements in people's conditions. And so what happened at Pelican Bay in California in the 2010s was that um, people inside coordinated a hunger strike from within Pelican Bay by passing letters under their cell doors, by sending letters out to advocacy organizations who then sent letters back to prisoners throughout the state. And prisoners throughout the state coordinated a series of weeks-long hunger strikes to protest the conditions of confinement, particularly in isolation at Pelican Bay um, to advocate for improved conditions and improved process that people would have some hope of getting out, that they wouldn't be consigned there forever because they'd been labeled a gang member. And that was incredibly successful. That drew national and international attention. That brought you the United Nations uh, into California condemning their practices. And it led to, this is my my sort of my transparency argument, it led to this incredibly important moment, which was I had been trying to get data about how many people were in Pelican Bay for how long, for years at that point. And a, a reporter, a public radio reporter wrote to the prison system and said, okay, I know you don't track this. You, ha- you, don't, you don't have reports about this, but just tell me today, how many people are in solitary confinement right now at Pelican? Bay and how long have they been there? And they they released this snapshot data that more than 500 people had been there continuously for more than 10 years. That was a class. That was a cognizable class that lawyers could get behind and support and come into court and say, we want to represent these 500 people we now know exist for the first time. Um, And that led to this litigation, which, you know, I would have loved to have seen a judgment (laughs) condemning the practice, finding it unconstitutional. Um, But the case, the case was settled ultimately with all of these additional protections, largely procedural to um, try to limit the amount of time people could spend in these conditions and to require uh, more process. So to say you have to be convicted of an actual, you have to be told that you actually violated a specific disciplinary rule, none of these general First Amendment problems. Um, So that's, you know, that is a significant step forward. It's not saying the practice is unconstitutional, right? Yeah, and it's an awesome feat of organizing to be able to organize across the system. And then what's, what's really interesting yet concerning is for lawyers for allies on the outside to get behind this, they first need to know what the problem is. And it it takes that sort of amazing snapshot data, that amazing one-off act of transparency to actually understand what's going on. And and so I want to shift a little to talk more about transparency, because this is something, especially in recent years that you've been, or in recent months, uh, you've been focusing a lot on. You launched an amazing archive, um, Prison Pandemic, and I first want to get background. Why, why did you and your team launch this um, this archive, and what is this archive? 
Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad to pivot to this because I, the the connections between solitary and the pandemic and the archive I think are really powerful, right? I was telling this hopeful story about this movement um, to a better understanding what was happening and resisting and reforming, and I think again, solitary is this kind of tool of last resort for people who don't fit, and it was an obvious place people went to during the pandemic to try to control and isolate, and I think it's been you know it's yet another example of. Um, what a, what a disturbing tool it can be. And that was kind of my entree point, right? Knowing, kind of understanding the history of prisons and solitary confinement and being really scared about what would happen during a pandemic and thinking about solitary confinement as a likely tool that would be used. Um, and talking with colleagues, Prison Pandemic is really a truly collaborative project with colleagues and doctoral students at UC Irvine. Um, to, to We were just kind of as people, formerly incarcerated students, students who study the prison system, faculty who study it, just kind of looking in horror at um, prisons as these institutions where we could see COVID was going to ravage them. And we knew people had a lack of access to health care and we knew they'd be placed in solitary. And just thinking kind of out of desperation, what can we do to shed light on these institutions? And also, what can we do? We were hearing from people who were saying to us, I just want you to know what's happening. All visits are shut down. No one's coming into the prisons. It's hard to even get to the phones and no one cares about us or knows what's happening to us. And that's a whole other layer of fear on what we're experiencing beyond the the deadliness of this illness that we were all experiencing outside. At least we could Zoom with our friends, right? Um, and and so we were just kind of brainstorming, like, what do we what do we do? And what we decided to do, at least for California, was build an archive, basically become a repository where people could put their stories and know that they would be heard. Um, and that's what Prison Pandemic is. It's a if you go to the site, um, it's prisonpandemic.uci.edu. Um, you uh, can look. You can look Look and see a map of all the prisons in the state, you click on a prison and you can hear stories from people incarcerated at that prison. So we have both a hotline and a PO box. So people who are incarcerated can call us and, and have us record their story, um, or they can send us a letter and then we read that letter. And so you see the text and the, the reading of the letter. They're all anonymous. Um, but the idea is just to try to almost overwhelm people with the narratives of what's happening inside and create a window. Um, and it's, I mean, I think all of us who do this work see, you know, we, we, we struggle with this. How do we create transparency? And my hope is that maybe this is a kind of model for thinking about how we um, amplify the voices inside and, and let the um, stories we hear be driven by those inside, right? I mean, we're not asking people, it's not a research project. We're not asking people systematic questions. We're just saying, here's a place where you can tell us what you're experiencing and we will share it so other people can hear and you'll know that you're not alone. And hopefully people will see it and, and be disturbed, right? But also just um, in 10 years, if we forget, or 20 or 30, the hope is that this will be a place where people will actually know what happened during the pandemic and we wouldn't otherwise have known because these voices were so silenced. Yeah, and it's, it's an amazing act of humanity um, to, to amplify these voices. Um, but more than that, it's, it's an amazing thing that's creating this record because as you say, um, in 10, 20, 30 years, we might not remember the sort of specifics. And as you studying prisons know, and many people who study prisons know, the record that's left is very much an institutional record. And this creates what Kelly Hernandez and others call like a rebel archive, um, voices, voices from the inside. Yeah, I love that rebel archive idea. <laughs> it's it's so cool. Um, and so do you have a vision of how this might function or serve people even after the pandemic? Yeah, um, I think we have 
a few visions and we're kind of working on this, right? I feel like it was this, this desperation project for the last six months of just like, how can we get as many stories as quickly as possible and get them up as quickly as possible so that people hear them. And also, I mean, I think to get stories, we needed to have a legitimate site. There's a lot of legitimate wariness in, in prison about whether people are trustworthy when, when we say we're going to accept your story. And so for all those reasons, we were very focused on just getting as many stories and getting a website up as fast as we could. And now, now that it's up, we're in this moment of thinking about um, how, how can we make it more useful and reach more people? Um, and I, I think we're thinking a lot about a lot of things. Some um, you know, using it as a as a resource for interpretive work. So we're talking about a podcast and there's um, a wonderful drama department at Irvine that's trained to think about how to use some of these stories to build a play. So some of this just making it more accessible, right? Right now it's hundreds of stories and the hope is you can kind of explore and hear some of these voices, but it can be kind of overwhelming. And so how do we um, use those stories as a starting place for understanding better and contextualizing what people are experiencing? Um, and then I think longer term, our hope is that this, as technology changes, that perhaps this is a model of how we can better interact and give people resources to share their experiences. I mean, as someone who's done research in and around prisons for all my career, I think a lot about the ethics of this work. And one of my excitements about this project is that it's a, it is a way um, to give people a voice and to access these communities that that gives them gives the 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 people experiencing these conditions a little more control than even a qualitative research project where I go in and ask interview questions because um, people have the option to reach out to us and tell us whatever they want to tell us and have that um, be shared with the public instead of the way researchers are filtering that. And so my hope is that it'll it'll kind of inspire people to think about um, all the challenges in, in creating transparency and how to create like more permanent mechanisms of transparency that are more driven by the voices of the people inside than by researchers. Even though, you know, I'm a researcher, I hope, like I said, an archive that people will be able to come back to and understand what happened, um, but one that's really much more driven by the participants than the organizers is our hope. Yeah, very cool. And it returns power to these people um, inside and around the system. And I want to I wanna now shift to the, the closing question, which I think you can build on what you've been talking about, but something I ask to everyone who I talk to, uh, what gives you hope today? <laughs> um, well, I guess I'll say two things. One, I mean, I'm so inspired by people's resilience. I mean, just the fact that people write to us and share their stories and share them so eloquently and are reaching out. Um, and I think I've always, you know, the the ways in which this work can be depressing and frustrating, I think, are counteracted by feeling like being a conduit um, to let other people know about this, having the opportunity in various pedagogical and um, kind of public facing positions to share these stories has always been something I take comfort in, right? Because I think more people should know and the more people who know, the more we can have productive conversations about better alternatives. Um, and the other thing I'll say gives me hope is that um, I, I got into this work through prison education program. So just volunteering as an educator in prison and um, I continue to do that work. I'm trying to build again, collaboratively, a bachelor's program out of UC Irvine for incarcerated students. And um, I right now take a lot of hope from the growing awareness of the 
the benefits of education as opposed to incarceration. So the reinstatement of Pell Grants for incarcerated students and the, the number of public projects across the country that are trying to increase opportunities for incarcerated students with the explicit knowledge that everything about education is cheaper and more effective than everything about incarceration. And that, and that gives me hope that there is this sort of sense and people acting on it. And, you know, you see the pendulum swings when you look at this historically, but I'm, I'm hopeful that that's a, that's a way forward in terms of um, shifting resources from incarceration to education and giving people a different set of opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sort of comes full circle because when you're describing at the beginning, the, the supermax of solitary confinement, there's almost this shift that it's no longer rehabilitative in any means. It's no, you're not using any of those words and it's solely punitive. Whereas these educational opportunities um, provide a different opportunity. It doesn't see incarceration solely as punitive. Well, I want to I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat today. This has been really interesting. Um, it has given me a lot to think about. Thank you for the really thoughtful questions. I enjoyed the conversation. Good. I'm glad. And thank you for listening. Uh, you can engage with us on Twitter, OU underscore CSC. We'll leave prisonpandemic.uci.edu in the show notes as well. Uh, so you can check out those stories uh, and tune in for our next episode.